The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, I, we have been reminded this morning, I love reminders of the sovereignty of God. How our God is so purposeful in the many details of life. I love it because so much of life just doesn't seem to make sense. So much of life, like this account that we're going to read in John 19, Jesus' trial, may seem like defeat. When in reality, it's the sovereignly ordained plan of God for great good. So we may have our questions, but when we remember just how big God is, it gives us hope in the circumstances that we don't understand. For instance, this story from the life of a missionary. As a child, Steve Saint thought of Timbuktu as a made-up name for the ends of the earth. In 1986, while traveling in Western Africa for Missionary Aviation Fellowship, he found himself stranded in the real Timbuktu. Steve decided to rent a truck to travel elsewhere, despite warnings that if it broke down, he wouldn't survive the Sahara Desert. Men armed with scimitars and knives watched him suspiciously after he failed to find a truck Steve, Steve's thought ran to his father, Nate Saint, a former missionary in Ecuador. When Steve was only five, natives speared to death his dad and four other missionaries. Now, 33, or 30 years later, Steve found himself questioning his father's death. Quote, I couldn't help but think the murders were capricious an accident of bad timing. Steve asked for directions to a church. Some children led him to a tiny mud brick house with a poster on the wall showing wounded hands covering a cross. A dark-skinned man in flowing robes approached and introduced himself as Noah. Steve asked Noah through a translator how he came to faith in Christ. Noah said he had stolen vegetables from a missionary's garden, and the missionary gave him the vegetables and promised him an ink pen if he memorized some verses from the Bible. Noah believed the verses he learned and came to Christ. Noah's parents threw him out of the home and pulled him out of school. Noah's mother even put a sorcerer's poison in Noah's food at a family feast. Noah ate the food but suffered no ill effects. Steve asked Noah, Why is your faith so important to you that you're willing to give up everything, even your life? He said, I know God loves me and and I'll live with him forever. Where did you get this courage from? Steve asked. The missionaries gave me books about Christians who suffered for their faith. My favorite was about five young men who risked their lives to take God's good news to Stone Age Indians in the jungles of South America. The book said they let themselves be speared to death even though 
they had guns and could have killed their attackers. Stunned at these words, Steve said, one of those men was my father. Your father? Now Noah felt stunned. Steve assured Noah of the truth of the story, and then Noah assured Steve that God had used his father's death many years later to help a young Muslim-turned-Christian hold on to his faith. Steve realized that if God could plan the death of his own son, he could also plan and use the death of Steve's dad, Nate Saint, to accomplish his sovereign purpose, including reaching out Uh, reaching one young Muslim for Christ and orchestrating this God-ordained meeting of two men at the ends of the earth. Stories like this don't only apply to the deaths of missionary martyrs. Over time, God has brought countless people to Christ through the lives and deaths of ordinary housewives, common laborers, farmers, factory workers, business people, teachers, and school children. We won't all in this life meet someone whose story will suddenly shed light on God's purpose in our loved one's suffering or death. But I think most of us will have that very experience one day, beyond the ends of this earth, on that new earth, where we, eyes wide, will hear countless jaw-dropping stories of God's sovereign grace. What a great story. found that on Randy Alcorn's website, Eternal Perspectives Ministries. Um, Check that out. I love it um, because I love it when God shows us what he's been up to. But even when we're still in the dark, stuck in Timbuktu, as it were, that we can have an assurance that one day... Uh, maybe not until glory, we'll see. We'll see what he's been doing. We'll see and be amazed. And God's word is filled with these kinds of accounts, these moments of realization, especially in the circumstances surrounding the cross and Jesus' trial. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. John 19, we'll start at the end of verse 18, but... Uh, Before we read, let's pray together. Father, there are so many stories, so many details in our lives that will be revealed, that we'll see as your sovereign care, your perfect wisdom and goodness. And certainly, when we consider the details of your son's trial and crucifixion, we we see the best, the most purposeful story of all. Help us to see ourselves in this story, to see that we are a part of this, that we are the guilty ones. We are the recipients of amazing grace, and that this story is forever relevant and impactful in our attitudes and in our day-to-day interactions. Lord, guard us from taking this story and your amazing grace for granted, growing so accustomed to it that we take it for granted. Give us a a continual and growing awe of what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, John um, 18, I'm going to pick it up at verse 38 and read through chapter 19, verse 6. Pilate has just said these famous words, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is God's word. Behold the man. In yet another attempt to remove himself from the situation, Pilate knows Jesus is innocent and mockingly presents him, Behold the man, to the Jews. And three times he attempted to weasel his way out of this. Luke's gospel tells us that when Pilate heard Jesus had had been teaching in Galilee, he passed the buck to Herod and sent him off to Herod knowing that this was his jurisdiction. Herod was excited to see Jesus, hoping that he'd put on a show and do something, some miraculous, spectacular demonstration. But when Jesus was silent before him, Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt, dressed him up like a fool, and sent him back. Pilate then remembered, ah, there's a tradition, Passover time, where they, we'd release a prisoner. Now, here's a way out. So he thinks of the worst of the worst, the man that the Jews would certainly not want, Barabbas, a robber, a murderer, a terrorist, really. And Pilate obviously has so much contempt for the Jews because look at how he, how he presents it to them. We, we know that the Jews don't see Jesus as their king and yet he says, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Matthew's gospel tells us that, that Pilate gave them the option, Barabbas or Jesus? And he wanted, again, he wanted out of this situation and knew Jesus was, was innocent. His wife warned him to have nothing to do with this righteous man. So Pilate gives them what he thought would be an obvious choice. But they shout for Barabbas instead. And in another attempt 
to release Jesus. Pilate has Jesus flogged. Now, there are three different levels of flogging. There's a lighter form, a beating intended to be severe, yet just a warning to petty criminals. Then there's a a more severe, a brutal flogging for more serious criminals. And then there's the, the worst of all, this savage scourging done to those who were on their way to be executed. A beating with a whip, a leather whip that had pieces of bone and metal, and we've read descriptions before on how this would just rip people open, rip their backs open, exposing bone and their innards. And some uh, people would die under this level of flogging. And it was really designed not just as a torture, but to so weaken the, the prisoner that the execution would happen a little quicker. Jesus eventually received this level of beating. But right here, what Pilate does is the lightest. Still a terrible beating, but what he has in mind is, let's, let's make an example of Jesus. Let's, hopefully the Jews will pity him. And then I'll present him and they'll feel like he's, you know, he's, he's got what he deserves or whatever they, whatever they think, and they're going to release him. So he, you know, s- still painful, still bruised and beaten, crown of thorns jammed onto his head, wrapped in a purple robe, Pilate mockingly presents him to the Jews, behold the man. In essence, look at his humiliation. Obviously, he's no threat to you. He looks like a clown. Can we be done with this now? Just let me release him. God is sovereign. The words that come from Pilate's mouth say much more than he intended. Along the lines of Caiaphas, the high priest, who said much more than he intended when he said that it was expedient for one man to die for all the people. Now there's more irony upon irony in this phrase, behold the man. Yes, he is the man. He is the word who took on flesh, truly God and truly man. And all people will one day behold him, either bowing in glad worship or giving an account to this ultimate man, the only righteous, the only innocent man who's ever walked the face of this earth. They executed the only man undeserving of death. They mock the only man worthy of worship. They judge the man who is the ultimate judge. Their only hope is in this man for their first human representative. The first man, Adam, fell, fell into sin. And because of his guilt, we're all guilty. We're all sinners. Jesus is the second man, the second Adam. He is another representative. And we're all either counted as in Adam 
and found guilty or counted as in Christ and forgiven. All who behold this man in faith, knowing that he stands in our place and takes the punishment that we deserve, will be saved. And what Pilate meant for the sake of mocking, we should continually say to ourselves today, behold the man. Behold the man when faced with suffering and sickness. Behold the man when we're dealing with a hard situation at work or in our marriage or with our children or because we don't have the things that we long for. When we struggle with these hard circumstances of life, we need to remember the sovereignty of God and say to ourselves, behold the man. We need to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or grow faint-hearted. Behold the man who willingly gave himself for you. Behold the man who endured humiliation and pain for you. Behold the man who bore the wrath of God for you. There's no one like him. As we partake of communion, behold the man who is our Passover lamb. As stated in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the the Jewish people sacrificed a Passover lamb. A lamb, according to Exodus 12, which needed to be without blemish. Kept, they would keep this lamb in an Israelite home for three days, examining it to make sure it was spotless, without blemish. Behold the man who is the lamb, examined three years during his ministry years. And three times Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And not only Pilate, but Jesus repeatedly declared to be the lamb without blemish. He was declared to be the lamb without blemish, not only through Pilate's unknowing words, but at his baptism. God the Father audibly declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The disciples, the ones who knew him best, living with him for three years, they go on to bear witness to this truth and they describe him as holy and righteous and without blemish or spot. And even Judas, his betrayer, ultimately confesses, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. With these things in mind, James Boyce writes, it is as one uncondemned and in fact declared to be blameless that Christ goes to Calvary. It is as God's blameless lamb that Jesus dies for the sins of the world. I love seeing the sovereignty of God. We get glimpses in our, in our own lives. And we have hope because we see it over and over and over again in God's word prophetically 
declaring what is to come to pass. God is sovereign over Christ's betrayal. He's sovereign over Christ being rejected and scorned by his own people with the use of false witnesses. Christ's silence before his accusers, his beatings, his being offered gall and vinegar to drink on the cross, being crucified with thieves, being pierced by a spear, being buried in a rich man's tomb. God is sovereign over all. And he is sovereign over the details of your life as well. He knows the number of your days. He knows the number of hairs on your head. If you belong to him, it's because he chose you before the foundation of the world to love you, to predestine you, and to call you to Christ, to sanctify you and glorify you. For those who know and love God, he works all things. And all things means all things. He means all things. He works all things for your good. And if you think, but there are so many things going on in my life that aren't good, remember to behold the man. All of Israel's history points to this man. He is the spotless lamb without blemish. He is, he is that scapegoat, you know, on the day of atonement, when the high priest would lay his hands on this scapegoat, transferring the guilt of the people's sins to it, and then, and then rejecting it, removing it from the camp. And so Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sin of many. Charles Spurgeon pointed out that the crowd's rejection of Jesus spoke forth the will of God because Christ, as he stood covered with his people's sins, had more sin laid upon him than that which rested upon Barabbas. In himself, Christ was innocent, and Spurgeon continues, holy, harmless, and undefiled is Christ Jesus, but he takes the whole load of his people's guilt upon himself by imputation, and as Jehovah looks upon him, he sees more guilt lying upon the Savior than even upon this atrocious sinner, Barabbas. This declaration Behold the man is the answer to God's promise. God's promise given to Adam and Eve who were expelled from the garden. That a savior would come. The offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Dealing with the problem of sin. And all of history has been waiting for this man. Waiting to behold him our Savior. To Moses, God said, I will raise up a prophet like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And people have waited to behold such a prophet. To David, a king, one who will build a house 
for God's name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we've been waiting to behold this king. And this is amazing. In the time of Zechariah, when the returning exiles were rebuilding the temple, God revealed a priest who was to come. God actually told Zechariah to make a crown woven with silver and gold, to set it on the head of the high priest Joshua. Joshua, the Hebrew name translated as Jesus in Greek. And when this crowned priest was seated on the throne, here's what we read in Zechariah 6. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man... It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Zechariah knew this was symbolic of a man who was yet to come. And as he cried out, behold the man, he must have wondered about this great day to come. Wow, so can you imagine Can you imagine if Zechariah could see this day and what he would have thought had he been there to witness Pilate pointing to this bruised and beaten man, robed in mockery and with a different kind of crown upon his head, declaring, behold the man. And then this long-awaited prophet, priest, and king is presented to his people, led by their chief priests and officials who all give the answer, crucify him. Concerning this, Richard Phillips wrote, would Zechariah have been mortified by his prophecy's fulfillment? Or would he have marveled to see in in it, the true message of the Bible? Would he have realized that God was building his true temple where man may meet with God in the person and work of his bloodied, sin-cursed son? Why this? Because Jesus' suffering and death were suited to our need. That we as sinners might be forgiven and that We as rebels might be restored to God's love. Zechariah wove a crown of silver and gold for his priestly king, but how much more precious is the crown of thorns that Jesus wore for us? Behold the Lamb, our true priest, who ministers peace between holy God and guilty man. Behold the thorn-crowned king who, out of love, was willing to die. Behold the gospel of God's true prophet offering cleansing through faith in his own blood. Behold the man, Jesus Christ, God's son, the true temple where God will meet with man, here and here alone, fulfilling his ancient plan to redeem a people from their sins. Since God has orchestrated 
marvelous details throughout biblical history, fulfilling so perfectly in the person of Jesus. Can't we trust him with the details we don't understand? Do we really need to understand them? Can't we trust him? Can't we hope in him as we look to the things promised but not yet seen in our own lives? Things that don't make sense now but are promised to be working for our good, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison? Our hope is not wishful thinking in an in an eventual outcome. No, our hope is because of the man Christ Jesus, which we behold as the one who accomplished salvation at the cross. But there's another perspective that I want us to consider here. What about Barabbas? Did you know in Aramaic the name Barabbas means son of a father? Bar or son and Abba for father. And some even have said that Barabbas was also known as Jesus Barabbas. Jesus meaning Yahweh saves. And Barabbas, son of a father. God saves people like Barabbas. He saves people like you and me. His story, Barabbas' story, is our story. Barabbas represents, in a sense, he represents all of Adam's race. All fall short of God's glory. All who have sinned against God. Because all people, like Barabbas, are robbers. We rob God of his glory. We're all murderers through hatred in our hearts. We're all insurrectionists who rebel against our sovereign maker. We're all imprisoned. We all are or were imprisoned by the darkness of sin. So the story of Barabbas is our story. It's the story of a a sinner's salvation through Jesus Christ. So I I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine being Barabbas. Imagine sitting in your prison cell... You're about 1,500 feet away from this scene that we're reading about. You're, you're too far away to hear Pilate's voice. But you're close enough to hear the crowd's cries. We read of the exchange between Pilate and the Jews. We know that Pilate asks who they want released. And that the crowd responds with, Barabbas! But as you sit in your cell, all you hear is the shout of your name. And you wonder, what does this mean? What's going on? We know that Pilate then asks, what shall I do with Jesus? But all you hear is the crowd, and their next words are, crucify him. Again, Pilate asks, Pilate asks, why, what evil has this man done. But again, all you hear is crucify him. And you think, my time has finally come. Let me, um, 
Let me close with a very dramatic description of this scene written by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He writes, Barabbas must have looked at the palms of his hands and wondered how it would feel to have the nails ripping through the flesh. He must have remembered scenes of crucifixion death and the slow agony of the victims who suffered at times for a day or two before merciful death came to release them. He must have awakened with a start if he heard any hammering in the jail. And his mind must have anticipated the sound of the clanging hammers that would bring death near to him. And then in his prison, he heard the vague murmuring of the crowd that roared outside like a murmur of a troubled sea. He thinks he hears his own name. He can tell that there are angry cries and fear arises in his heart. Then he hears the sound of a key in the lock and a jailer comes to him and releases him. He must have thought that his time had come, but the jailer takes him to the door and tells him that he's free. Stunned, he walks nearer to the center of the scene and sees the man who is to die in his place. Finally, the procession begins toward Golgotha. He follows and sees Jesus fall under the weight of the cross. He sees Simon of Cyrene pressed by the soldiers to fall in line and carry the cross. And finally, they arrive at Calvary. What must have been his thoughts? He hears the echoing blows of the hammer striking the nails and looks down looks down at his own hands. He had thought that that this would be his day. And here he's breathing the air of springtime and looking at the dark cloud that is gathering in the sky. Does he say, those hammer blows were meant for me, but he is dying in my place? He could have said it in literal truth that day. Barnhouse concludes that Barabbas was the only man in the world who would say that Jesus took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God being poured upon me. I deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in the three phrases, I deserve hell, Jesus took my hell, There's nothing left for me but his heaven. It's hard to imagine. But this is the reality that we all deserve. And if you've never thought of yourself as being like Barabbas, a guilty and condemned sinner, then let me give you some good news. 
There's a pardon available for you. Behold the man, Jesus Christ. Or as John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a pardon. Your sin can be removed. As far as the east is from the west, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to be in Christ, we must confess our sin. We must acknowledge our guilt and what we deserve and ask God to forgive us, looking to Jesus as our Savior, trusting in Him and what He did for us. And God will give you that pardon. And this pardon is true freedom because not only is your punishment paid, but you're actually rewarded with the greatest treasure of all, being adopted and loved by God forever. Remember, I deserve hell. Jesus took my hell. There is nothing left for me but his heaven. If this is your reality, then it's not just some it's not just something great that happened in the past. The gospel is not just something in the past that we move on from. It's the best news of all that we need to remember and celebrate and apply to every single day of our lives. God is sovereign over the details. And as hard as our days may be, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This truth, this reality, this eternal perspective changes everything. We have a real and certain and lasting hope. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that that you are the great writer of history, that your story is perfect, and it's gloriously revealed to us in your word. Lord, give us a greater hunger for your word, looking for and admiring the man, Christ Jesus, that we might behold him, that we might grow in our love for him, that we might be changed by him. Lord, help us to see our need and how you've saved us and provided for us and that your promises are true. Give us a a growing hope, no matter, regardless of the circumstances of life, knowing that you are for us, that you are with us, that you see and work and do all things well. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.